Hello, and welcome to ReFi Radio. I'm your host, Will Moyo. In partnership with Park Madison Partners, Real Estate Fund Intelligence is bringing you monthly discussions with some of the real estate industry's most innovative voices. On this month's show, Nancy Lachine, Park Madison's founder and managing partner, speaks to Adam Gallistel, head of the Americas for GIC Real Estate, about GIC's global investment outlook, lessons learned over time, and Adam's personal experience that led him to his current role at GIC. Thank you, Will. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is Nancy Lachine from Park Madison Partners, and I'm here on Zoom with Adam Gallistel. We're recording this episode on Friday, October 30th, right on the eve of the U.S. presidential election. And by the time it airs, we'll probably know the outcome of the U.S. election, at least we hope we will. Um, But for large global institutional investors, there's always elements of uncertainty. So Adam, it's great to have you with us today. You help oversee one of the largest real estate portfolios on the planet. You're currently head of the Americas for GIC Real Estate, the Sovereign Wealth Fund for the Government of Singapore, one of the biggest and most active real estate investors in the world. We met about 12 years ago. Um, I think you were covering Latin America for GIC, and we were spending some time in Brazil. Um, But take us back to the beginning. Uh, Tell us where you started your real estate career. Candidly, I kind of fell backwards into real estate. Um, I had been an undergrad at Penn. I was studying intellectual history, which is a pretentious way of saying sort of the history of philosophy and the history of ideas. Uh, for a while, I thought I wanted to become a professor of history, which is odd at Penn being, you know, with the, the Wharton overlay. Probably somewhere around my senior year, I realized that uh, there were five good jobs in the country for what it was I was working on. And <laughs> I wasn't even in the top five of the people at Penn studying my particular uh, uh, chosen, uh, chosen muse. Um, so I, I, I realized I wasn't the path that I thought I was on was not the path I was on, but really had no idea what I was going to do afterwards. So um, I graduated college without a resume, without a job, and proceeded to go uh, off to Turkey to sail the Turkish coast for uh, a little while. And then, uh, then I ran out of money. And so I moved home with my parents. Uh, and I lived there for about five days. And I was like, I need to get a job. Um, <laughs> my parents were great. They, they, they had no pressure on me. They were happy to have me there, but I was not happy to be there. So uh, this was the the late 90s and the uh, or mid to late 90s and the job market was pretty good and uh, liberal arts degrees um, weren't in demand in financial services, um, you know, much as they aren't today, but um, liberal arts degrees, uh, consulting firms would hire you. Um, and so uh, the first callback I got was from a group called the Concord Group uh, based out of Newport Beach, California. Went down and had an interview. Uh, they gave me a job offer and, you know, Pursuant to the earlier statement that I just needed to get a job, I took the offer that was given to me, and so began my <laughs> uh, <laughs> so began my career in real estate. Um, and uh, you know, the Concord Group was great. I learned a lot, and it actually turned out that I I liked real estate, but um, uh, you know, candidly, I didn't like where I was on the food chain. In that, you know, uh, consult uh, you know at the time, Concord Group did a lot of uh, third-party market validation, uh, product positioning studies for land developers and home builders. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that we were largely only being hired after somebody had decided what they wanted to do. Um, and we were there to, you know, sort of 
dress up an investment committee memo and say things like don't trust me trust the experts at the concord group um for our you know our in independent opinion that we had been paid to give um so i um as much as i like the people there i um just wanted to move off the food chain and also you know as a uh as a nerdy jewish guy uh um, riding the desk, um, you know, Newport Beach is a lovely, lovely place, uh, but it's not great for a, a nerdy Jewish guy riding the desk. Um, you know, my life, my roommate was a lifeguard, um, and it was great for him. But you know, I figured I should go where the other nerdy Jewish guys go, so I went to New York, um, and uh, <laughs> I. Uh, <laughs> um, Sorry. So then, yeah, you uh, digress. I, I digress. digress. <laughs> I digress. Um, oh, so, man. so anyway, um, uh, I was lucky enough shortly after moving here to to get a job with one of our former clients, which was LaSalle Investment Management, which at the time had a land development investment group. Uh, you know, in the early days, we were doing we were investing what at the time seemed like an unfathomable amount of money to me. You know, we were doing $10 million equity checks, $15 million equity checks, uh, sometimes $20 million equity checks into land developments sort of, uh, and you know, some of the people we were doing it with were people like SunCal, and this was pre-Lehman giving them money. And, um, and it was fun and interesting. And at some point during all of that, I got a call from one of the higher ups at LaSalle and they said, Hey, guess what? We're, uh, merging with JLW and we're going public um, and land development is uh, absolutely not anything we want to talk about in the context of our public offering. Uh, so we're going to be closing this group down. Um, and so you have two choices. You can either work yourself out of a job or you can, uh, we, the, we, the firm had been hired to work uh, as essentially a work out of the, the, the diplomat in Hollywood, Florida, when it was owned by the plumbers and pipe fitters. And so uh, not really knowing much other than working myself out of a job didn't seem like a good idea. I chose door B, spent a few years doing that, getting it open, went back to business school, um, uh, spent a summer at Goldman doing banking, um, Really liked Goldman, liked the culture, thought I was going to go back. Then I had an offer in the, um, in essentially their debt securitization group. And, you know, I just wasn't that interested in, in the debt securitization group. I tur graciously turned down the offer and then had a fairly terrifying second year of business school where at first I started out arrogant, I would say, because I was like, oh, I got an offer from Goldman. I turned it down. You know, this is going to be easy. Everybody's going to want to hire me. And uh, I don't know, after about uh, my 40th rejection, um, it was certainly humbling. Um, and uh, as I got towards the, the end of the year, I had a couple options on the table. And one of them was was GIC, which frankly was largely unknown to me. This is sort of 2003, I guess, pre the even the coining of the term sovereign wealth fund. And I remember sitting with a, uh, a woman at the time named Heidi Kosh, and I said, how much money do you guys have to invest? She said, I can't tell you that. And I said, uh, how much money did you invest last year? Can't tell you that either. And I said, okay. Um, she said, but, uh, you know, trust me, it's a lot. And, um, <laughs> She seemed she seemed very trustworthy, and so I, uh, I sort of I uh, I went to work for GIC, and then have been here ever since. I thought it was going to be a few year stint. Really, you know, I think I've stayed because, you know, GIC is actually uh, it's a fascinating place. It's both sort of 
both the fountainhead of capital, um, you know, really it is one of the, the, the true sources of capital, and it's also largest repository of market information. And so sort of mm -hmm. being able to, to have the power of the fountainhead and the information that frankly resides, you know, sort of inside of investment banks, but they can't act on is a, is a very potent combination for someone who's curious about the world and looking to express views through investments. Um, and so, and, you know, along the way we've, uh, you know, had the team grow from, I think when I hired, there were seven or eight people in the Americas and, you know, now we've got 40 some odd people. Um, and I've, uh, had the pleasure and honor of, of watching the portfolio and the organization grow into, uh, what is, is, is really a remarkable institution. That's my story. Wow, Adam. <laughs> I feel like we should just stop there. That's a, it's such a great story. I mean, if anyone ever thinks it's a straight line to the gold ring, you know, just have to listen to that because, um, it, yeah, there's, there were a lot of twists and turns. And um, I, loved, I love the way you've described your current job as being curious about the world um, and looking to express views through investments because it really that really is you know that, that that dates back to your intellectual history days i'm sure it's just um kind of having a much broader view than where do i find quote the best risk adjusted return um but to, to back me into kind of how how are you thinking at gic about how to allocate capital um before let's start with so you just cover the americas is that right which is Canada, U.S., and Brazil? Uh, so really. I, I just run the Americas, but we have a global investment committee of which each of the regional heads uh, uh, sit on. So um, uh, I uh, know enough to be dangerous about the rest of the world, but, you know, my day job is the Americas. So tell us about um, what you can tell us. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very sensitive, you know, this, there could be a a movie in here or we could be at a restaurant in Brooklyn or something but you know, tell me tell me when I cross the line to what you can't talk about um, in terms of relative returns how do you how does GIC allocate capital around the world do you have one one benchmark or how do you think about it yeah sure so I mean we um, we price capital around the world basically on a spread to risk-free rate basis. So we start, you know, in any given country, local currency bonds, we take that, we add a risk premium for being in real estate. Um, and then we have a system that allows us to sort of uh, um, evaluate everything up and down the risk spectrum that scores out essentially the idiosyncratic risks of a deal. And so that would be anything from composition of returns, percentage of returns coming from income versus capital gain, you know, the security of the income, you know, how volatile it is, to how much leverage is in the system, to some more subjective factors such as quality of the counterparties involved, quality of the location, et cetera, and so on. And so for every deal we look at anywhere in the world, we use that, that system to score out and each of the categories I suggested of which ultimately there are 16 has associated risk premium with it. And so we start with risk-free rate, you start with general cost of being in real estate, and then you add all these idiosyncratic risk premia. And that, that, that system is just a tool. It's not perfect, frankly, in a world with zero interest rates, it probably tends to possibly understate uh, you know, the risk returns mm -hmm. in, in developed markets, but it, mm -hmm. but what it's important about it is it provides a unifying and organizing framework for the firm 
to think about whether we're being paid uh, for the risks we're taking in any country in any deal. And so it allows us to rationally approach both a, say, a development of residential in Mumbai in the same day we talk about a triple net Amazon lease for 25 years <laughs> located, you know, in the best part of the Inland Empire, right? And so each has its own cost of capital and it get, and, and, to the, and we can agree or disagree with the suggested cost of capital, but it, it sort of provides an, organiza an organizational principle to make decisions rationally. Yeah, and do you, do you commit in local currency and then is there any hedging going on or you just assume you're gonna be long-term in all these markets and you, the currency risk is in that framework that you've, that you've outlined? Um, so the uh, unlike virtually any other investor in the world, you know, the place we don't invest is Singapore. So we have no natural hedged currency. We do have a benchmark currency, which is a mix of uh, global currencies. And we generally, you know, which allows us essentially to be, you know, naturally hedged since we have a, a, a diversified funding mix of currencies for most countries. There are, um, we do do some hedging uh, on the margin if we are in off benchmark currencies. Um, so I guess the, the short answer is it depends. It's um. <laughs> <laughs> a good one. So um, before we kind of move on to what's going on here in the US and in, where there's so much to talk about, but I'd, I'd love to hear your views about what's going on in Brazil today. Um, you've spent you know, a good decade plus following things there, and it's been a very deep cycle. Um, there, you, you were, there was an interesting interview you did recently um, where you, had, you developed an index um, for Brazilian uh, investments. And so I'm just curious uh, kind of what the house view is on investing in, in that market today. Yeah, I mean to be clear, we didn't. Do, we we were just we just partnered with MSCI, who actually developed the index. Um, you know, the the thinking behind developing it is just if you look at the generally available indexes for private real estate, um, they don't reflect the investable universe, which is what an index should do, right? If you think about it in public market terms, um, and rather they reflect by and large the historical artifacts of how those indexes came about. So, you know, either being based in Europe or the US and the industries that grew up around them. Um, so we just thought it was time, given that there is increasing, you know, institutional interest in Brazil that to, to work with MSCI to start, you know, essentially measuring how, how we're doing uh, relative to the other uh, participants in the market on the principle that, you know, you make what you measure. Um, Sorry, what what was your other question? I, I was just I, I, so are you allocating into Brazil today? Are you? I mean, we. Oh yeah. We, so what's we my view on Brazil? Part, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I'll just. But my sort of premise on that is obviously we had been so active in Brazil for quite a while, from two thousand nine through to about three years ago, um, but it's just been really hard for most um, North American investors to take a long term view there, and the currency is so volatile, and you know with everything that went on with car wash and all it just it just felt like um, the excess return that people felt they had to make for taking the the country risk um, has made it a place where there's been a lot less uh, international capital going into real estate there which could be a great opportunity for you guys um, but maybe not so I'm just curious what your view is 
You know, we continue to be constructive on Brazil. Um, as you point out, you know, it's been a rough decade for Brazil. Um, and Brazil was, if you roll back pre-COVID, Brazil was about to, we, a lot of people, including ourselves, believe Brazil was about to be on a roll and that it had uh, made constitutional reforms that uh, made the state more financially solvent long-term. Um, it was. It, it had had two years of anemic but positive growth out of the deepest recession they'd ever had, and there was just a. There were a lot of good tailwinds going on in Brazil, and then COVID hit, and you know, um, that went away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would say, from a macro perspective, um, Brazil uh, is and remains challenging. That doesn't mean there aren't good invest, you know, investment opportunities in Brazil. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the interesting things is that we've actually managed to oh, several of the assets that we purchased during the, um, say, the last five years, um, we've actually managed to monetize despite the, despite the poor operating environment. And that's just because, you know, Brazil has had the same drop in interest rates in, in relative terms, actually a larger drop in interest rates as the rest mm -hmm. of the world post COVID. And so that's uh, that's led to a desire for yield. So uh, even notwithstanding the 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 objectively challenging macro fundamentals in Brazil, we've actually been able to harvest some quite interesting gains on the back of cap rates mm -hmm. um, being a you know a, a second derivative of interest rates and. Um, people paying record low cap rates for assets in Brazil, even though uh, operations aren't fantastic. So you can still make money there. Um, I think, you know, our thinking in Brazil overall is that um, you got to, it's, uh, it is a bit of a trading market. Um, uh, you know, the windows for liquidity open and shut quite rapidly. Um, and there is a decent amount of volatility, but it, there are opportunities to make money there for, um, for the you know for the the not faint of heart i should say yeah yeah i mean you you make such a great point and it's i mean it's a big macro point but obviously as rates have declined i mean in brazil they've declined you know hundreds and hundreds of basis points you know and here maybe 150 basis points but investors who have been debt investors are you know looking more and more to equity for any kind of yield um and that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. I mean, the Fed's clearly um, previewed that here. So it, that, that kind of flood to equity and what that will ultimately do to values um, and the ability to find liquidity through um, real estate, I think is definitely um, fueling some of what we're seeing in terms of the activity um, or at least the, the ex expected opportunity that real estate investors are seeing right now. You know, sort of moving more towards the U.S. and in transaction volume, what we've seen is there's really only probably five categories where real estate's transacting in any kind of volume today. So obviously industrial, um, residential in the rural areas and blue states primarily, um, triple net lease, uh, medical office, uh, life sciences. And so those are, you know, those pricing, that pricing is all pre-COVID pricing and there's a fair number of bids for any of those deals. But the biggest part of the capital markets office um, is just stuck at the moment. And it's stuck both because, you know, there's no transparency in trades, um, there's no transparency in leasing, and there's this question of where the demand's going to be. Um, so 
that's kind of how, you know, what we've been seeing broadly in the market. Um, tell us, Adam, from your perspective, and I, I, you also, you obviously operate in all four quadrants, which I think is an interesting aspect of this. But tell us what you've been doing, if anything, in the last seven months um, in terms of new activity. Um, and why don't we just start with that? Sure. Uh, last seven months. So, uh, you know, frankly, the last seven months seems like a decade. So um, uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, both in terms of uh, just effort produced um, and also uh, how, you know, there's been a lot of not all seven months are equal in terms of how we've approached things. So I'd say initially going in, you know, the sort of late days of March, early April, um, there was a ton of price action. You know, there's a lot of forced selling in the debt markets, which we um, were one of the few, oh, I mean, there were several players, but we we made meaningful investments for a period of about two weeks in the debt markets, uh, largely buying in capital structures that we already knew and had an underwritten and largely buying senior to positions we already had, sort of. Uh, cognizant of that, the fact that we, since we already own the junior, we, you know, to a certain extent, we own the risk. And so if we were comfortable with that piece, we should be comfortable up the stack at higher returns. Um, and two, we didn't, um, given the speed at which things were happening, we f thought it was best to focus on what we know knew. And also we were concerned that if we bought a bunch of different, ca into a, a bunch of different capital structures, you know, essentially you're buying into a series of potentially cascading liabilities if you intend to, to defend all of them. And so um, while our balance sheet is big, we didn't necessarily want to be, um, you know, all over the place is how we think about things. So we, so we bought a decent amount of debt for about two weeks, then TALF came along, that all stopped. You know, candidly, we've actually sold out some of, the, the, uh, of that debt subsequently. Uh, we did similar things in the public equity markets. Um, and actually round-tripped a, a decent number of stocks there as well. On the private markets, you know, there was nothing trading in the early days, and so we didn't do anything there. Uh, as you fast forward to um, the rest of the time, we've continued to buy slowly some debt securities that we think are mispriced, but it's been slow going. We've continued to um, uh, play in the public equity markets to a lesser degree. Um, and frankly, see better value in the public equity markets than we do in the private markets where the bid-ask spread, you know, remains large by uh, uh, certainly in the COVID-affected names. I'd say our approach on the private markets going forward is, is, is you know, putting together, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of these people have heard people from Baupost talk recently at the Wharton conference, you know, Kleeman and people from Blackstone talk at various conferences recently. And, you know, Blackstone pursues a more thematic approach to the world, um, and Baupost is very, you know, uh, idiosyncratic opportunities, opportunistic approach to the world. I would say we do both, um, just because of the scale of our balance sheet, we, uh, we need to have a, as wide an aperture as possible. I would say right now, in terms of scale deployment uh, and investment, it's really in the sectors you mentioned are the only places we continue to be able to invest in size. And, and you know, frankly, with some trepidation, but we continue to invest in a lot of the tailwind sectors, uh, life sciences, industrial, um, you know, debatable as to whether or not storage is tailwind, but we've, we've done some stuff in storage recently as well. Uh, manufactured housing, um, there's been uh, data centers, all of those areas have actually continued to do quite well. Um, 
and um, you know we continue to feed them, although at ever increasing valuations. At the same time, we've also tried to run into the COVID fire. Um, we've done a couple of um, preferred securities, which are a way to sort of bridge the bid ask spread between equity and debt in the lodging space. Um, we've uh, been buying pieces of paper that you know it's debatable as to whether or not we get paid off, uh, but we think the basis is good in uh, both uh, in some of the gateway cities and sort of traditional asset classes. Uh, as you said, office right now, pricing equity is, we're finding challenging. Overall, look, I, I put myself somewhere in the middle between the, you know, the office REIT CEOs who have no choice but to say it's nothing's going to change, it's going to be great all over again, and the uh, maybe the analysts who cover them who say that the world is falling apart. I mean, look, I think it's going to be a rough decade for gateway office owners you know simply on the five say like i fundamentally believe like the cities aren't dead they come back um you know the trends of urbanization have not been reversed they've just been paused that said you know if you say post economic downturn which is you know going to be horrific um and as are all economic downturns for office leasing um that stabilized demand is say 95%, 90% of where it was before because of work from home, et cetera, and so on. You know, on the margin, I think it has to affect it a little bit. That actual 5% of incremental demand is very important to office landlords because, uh, you know, pricing power in the office market is all about marginal demand. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you, um, especially in markets like New York and San Francisco, where there's been a ton of new supply added, you know, taking 5% out of your stabilized demand numbers actually more often than not has you being uh, below, say, 90% occupancy in a given market. And, you know, in a market like New York City that has, I don't know, was it 450 million square feet? If you've got more than 10% vacancy, tenants have a lot of choices. Um, it's a bit like Vegas where, you know, in the hotel market, Vegas runs in the 80s and 90s, and yet they haven't been able to push rate for a decade because, you know, 10% vacancy in Vegas is still more hotel rooms than, than most cities have, right? So um, I, I think it's going to be really difficult for landlords to gain pricing power for quite a long time. And then you couple with that with some of the lasting legacies of WeWork, which are increased work letters, more flexible office space, um, more flexible office lease terms, sorry, not space. Um, you've got this dual hit of increased capital investment, um, either trying to stay current or cool or sexy, coupled with shorter lease tenure, coupled with a lack of pricing power. And ultimately, that's, you know, if you run that through your underwriting, that in present value terms, that even putting aside the economic downturn, it's hard to see office coming back to the valuations that it was pre-COVID for quite a while. You're making those 40, 50% declines in uh, NAD in REIT values look look like they're making more sense than some of the private private marks at the moment. Um, yeah, I'm sure you're, that's, it's, a, it's an unpopular view to voice that, but I, I certainly hear what you're saying. How, how are you, you know, it's funny because um, I was just talking with someone else who was saying, although office is the biggest part of the real estate capital markets and it's always been considered the core asset. Um, at the moment, it doesn't feel core. Um, and it reminds me of when, you know, I, I spent 10 years working for a manager whose focus was regional malls. And that was the other thing that was really big in core. And um, the CapEx 
you know, was always understated for regional malls, and you know, you've just made the case for why it's going to be understated for the foreseeable future um, for office as well. So um, it, it's that's a lot of real estate to digest, and it's a lot of uh, mark to market that hasn't been done in the private sector yet. If, if that's if that all comes to pass. Yeah. Um... You know, I, I've always struggled with the idea that office is a core asset class. I mean, frankly, office is a better uh, is a better business in other parts of the world than it is in the U.S. Um, and frankly, office is a better business, at least just structurally, on the West Coast of the U.S. than it is on the East Coast, right? Because on the East Coast, you're signing leases that step up, I don't know, every five to seven years, usually with steps that don't meet inflation. You're playing sort of Russian roulette as to when they roll a lot of below the line capital intensity. So if you know if you're buying things at four caps, you know your economic cap rate is one two percent uh, when you factor in all the TIs and LCs you're using to buy those leases. So I've I've actually quite never quite understood why office has been considered you know core so to speak. Frankly, it's it had it's it's always even pre-COVID exhibited uh, more volatility than asset classes that than a lot of the niche asset classes which are which won't even be considered for core treatment be they you know so i mean to me you know when people use the word core to me it's a bit like a rorschach test like it's whatever people want it to say right but i mean to me core means high free cash flow conversion high uh recurring income good financing spreads and you know, frankly, Office hasn't offered any of those things for quite a long time. Um, whereas, you know, using manufactured housing as an example, which has never been considered a core asset class, like it's one of the most stable income streams that we've come across. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, similarly, and you know, I think the public markets actually appreciate this much better than private instances. You know roughly half of the public markets index is stuff that isn't in the traditional four or five food groups of real estate. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and frankly, that half has been the better performing half by, you know, for at least the last two decades. So. It's, yeah, it is. It's interesting. And there's definitely a case study in there. Um, when I started in real estate, which is about a decade before you residential multifamily was not considered an institutional investment. So, yeah. um, you know, the idea was that institutions wouldn't want to own, you know, have to be responsible for, you know, someone's kitchen flooding or whatever. And um, obviously, you know, multifamilies, you know, until industrial has been the most successful um, investment over the last decade for, for institutions. So it'll be interesting to see how these, quote, specialty categories um, work their way into uh, institutional portfolios. They're just not as big right now. So. Um, that's a challenge. What What are you thinking about um, urban residential? Um, how are you, How are you viewing that space? Because obviously there's been so much new construction, and uh, right now you're seeing rents fall in a lot of markets. Uh, but there may well be some buying opportunities going forward. Uh, you're talking about high-rise multifamily in in cities. Yes. Um, I mean, look, it's going to be a rough, I, I, frankly, I'm probably more constructive on the long-term prospects for, for multifamily um, in that I, like I said, I think cities come back. I think this, this idea that we've, you know, 
we're we're moving back to the 60s and 70s is to the the suburban uh type lifestyle that uh, was uh touted i i just don't buy it maybe i'm blind to it because i live in the city myself but i just look around the world and you know this this sort of suburban exit option that has existed in co for COVID. Frankly, the U.S. is somewhat unique in that respect, right? If you um, if you looked at Asia, a suburb in in say for example China is just you know the densest urban environment you can imagine, uh, ten miles away. It's still it's still a city, true urban environment. So this uh, and people have all come back there, and I I just think it, you know really the choice in Asia is or in most of Asia is rural or urban. And I think given that choice, urban wins every time. Even in Europe, you know, the suburbs, frankly, are from a livability perspective, are a much less compelling value proposition for, 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 for most than because you have to go way out in order to get any access to the urban environment. You know, I think ultimately it comes back there and has come back faster. And then coming back to the U.S., I don't see any reason why the U.S. will behave differently long term in that fashion. So, you know, we see as a result, urban multifamily, we see, a, you know, I I think patience and courage would be my words for that is that uh, like office, we will see opportunities. I just think some more pain needs to run through the system before um, the his, the legacy's owner's anchoring of expectations um, has had time to adjust or because their lenders forced them to adjust. Um, so mm -hmm. uh, I think to your point, there will be interesting opportunities there. Yeah, well, maybe it's also because I'm a nerdy Jewish kid who grew up in New York City. I certainly agree with you about uh, the, the the cities will will eventually you know recover, and um, you know long term that's where the value you know will will, will retain itself. Um, you know, I, I I definitely want to hear your thoughts about lessons learned. Um, I know you lived through um, your you know sitting in or close to your seat at GIC during the last financial crisis. Um, and so when you think back to, you know, 2008, nine, and that painful decline and, you know, unwinding some of the things that you had to unwind there, how are you, what are you thinking about in terms of lessons learned and how are you taking that experience and uh, having it uh, inform your decisions uh, in this post-COVID, in what will be a post-COVID environment? Part of it is, uh, how am I taking those lessons? Good question. I mean, I do come back to the earlier statement about patience and courage. You know, I think the good news for us relative to the last financial crisis is that uh, we went into this crisis a lot better prepared. Um, as a firm, you know, we had basically been had called the top um, several years too early, um, and so we're, we had making been making investments that, that at the time we thought as being very much more defensive than offensive, um, sort of looking for steady income streams. Now, of course, some of the things that we thought were defensive are, you know, anathema to COVID, right? So, <laughs> like like, like mm -hmm. betting on a, you know, urban multifamily, for example. Um, things I tell my staff all the time is, look, this too shall pass. Um, um, you know, 
don't waste a good crisis. I mean, they're all cliches, so I'm, I don't know if I have anything. Really. <laughs> um, but it, but it, I frankly, rep- the cliches exist for a reason, and and it's important to repeat them, especially to the young staff who, in many cases, didn't go through a prior crisis, saying, "Hey, look." Don't get scared. Markets tend to overshoot in both directions. And so when markets do overshoot or when buyers find they need liquidity, that's when our competitive advantages come to the fore, right? Especially on the last, you know, the ability to provide large capital solutions in a short amount of time, you know, it it becomes very highly valued in moments like this. Um, And I think, you know, recognizing that and making sure we keep the foot on the gas and not try to time the absolute bottom or some of the lessons that 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 we learned take from the last ones so um we have the benefit of of i guess looking smart in that regard because we're so underinvested. um you know we, we, frankly we have a a need to invest um through the cycle at all times so you know, sometimes our need to invest can be perceived as being contrary and when it's really just us trying to execute the business plan we've had all along. But, you know, we'll take the credit when it's given, right? So. Always take the credit. That's a lesson, <laughs> maybe a cliche, but that's a lesson I learned early and often. Um, I want to switch gears for a second and just ask, um, um, how are you factoring climate change into your investment process and has that changed at all? Uh, yeah, no, we, I mean, uh, you know, this has become actually a firm-wide um, client-driven initiative and in ESG in general. Um, and that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'd be lying if we started out years ago in, in much as Asia in general was, you know, were we at the forefront of any of this? this is like say the European institutional community was no, the answer is no. Um, but we're a fast follower. Um, and I think now look from, from our, uh, f- Singapore is an island in, in the middle of an ocean, right? Uh, with no, um, and so, you know, there is a certain existential threat to Singapore as a country uh, from rising sea levels. And so that, that sort of existential threat is, is really reflected in a lot of how we think about investing now and in that, yes, we do in our underwriting look at environment, both the environmental impacts of what we're doing as well as the environmental, you know, the feasibility long term of that of that structure since it's you know it's not chattel it's immovable of being above ground uh 20 30 years from now and we are you know we we think in those kind of time horizons uh and and you know frankly i think the client thinks in even longer time horizons and it's just the client's uh, desires to think in even longer term horizons and just the realities of running a business probably cause us to shorten the timeframes to something that, you know, is more near term. Right. Have you, have you redlined any geographies um, because of rising sea levels? Uh, Not explicitly, but we have, uh, um, so no, Um, but there, there are investments we've passed on because we're concerned about the, that it might not be there in a few years. Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of personal questions and kind of go back to um, your, your tw- cyclical twists and turns in your career. Um, have, you, um, have you had any important mentors in your career and what did you learn from them? I, you know, I, I've never had one, you know, frankly, I think the biggest mentor in my career is, is and this is, again may sound cheesy, it is, 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 was outside of my career. It was actually my grandmother, uh, 
who you know uh who instilled in me early on and just the, the importance and primacy of of exercising curiosity in everything you do um and i think that's a lesson that stays with me uh throughout my uh has stayed with me throughout my career and i've had you know uh, one, the pleasure of working with uh, wonderful people who have guided me along the way um you know including um a man named Colin Murphy, who was at LaSalle Investment Management, and a woman named Emma Tyronson, uh, and her mother-in-law, uh, Marta Borsani, at the Concord Group, and uh, as well as Dr. Seek here in, uh, um, uh, at GIC. But they, I, I didn't have sort of one father figure, if you will, who guided me throughout, uh, throughout my career. Well, needless to say, I, I, love, I love the grandmother image. Um, I think it might make many of us think about our own grandmothers. Um, <laughs> I, had, I had a grandmother who, uh, my mother's father died while my grandmother was pregnant with her in the influenza epidemic of 1918, which is of course a timely reference. And um, my grandmother worked every day of her life to support these two kids with, who didn't have a father. Um, and so it certainly it's still a certain work, work ethic in our, in our family. So appreciate that reference. I know you love music. You want to just share with us uh, maybe the best live concert you've ever attended? <laughs> uh, I think the best live uh, concert I ever attended was when I was in high school. Perry Farrell had just broken up with Jane's Addiction and found, founded this band called Porno for Pyros. And me and my friends sneaked across the border to Tijuana and watched him give one of their first shows uh, in a really seedy, disgusting bar packed with about 150 people. Perry Farrell was getting off and doing stage dives, and the energy was incredible. And it was uh, it was one of the uh, you know, in terms of live music experiences, it was probably the best one I've ever uh, uh, had the pleasure of experiencing. Adam, thanks. I have no idea how to top that, so we're going to end there. <laughs> Thanks so much for your thoughts, for your candor, um, and your insights. Really, really appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Thanks. That's all for this episode of Refi Radio's Innovations in Real Estate. First, I'd like to thank Adam for taking time to discuss GIC's outlook in such a volatile market. Thanks, as always, to Nancy Lachine for the discussion. We'd also like to thank Park Madison Partners, for working with Refi on this podcast series. For more information on the firm, please visit their website at parkmadisonpartners.com. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Benson, with help from Samantha Rowan and myself. Theme music is by Jazhar. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Refi Radio, in partnership with Park Madison Partners. I'm Will Moyo. Until next time...